It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. what you missed this week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favourite interviews from The Daily Show after the market close that I co-anchor along with Joe Weisenthal and Romain Bostic. What'd you miss on Bloomberg TV? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week marked a major victory for President Biden's economic agenda, with the infrastructure agreement passing by a massive margin in the Senate. Now, the legislation still faces an uncertain future in the House before heading to the president's desk, but it already is prompting questions about how it will all be paid for. And we got a view on the budgetary and economic impact of the bill. John Huntley, now he's the senior economist at the Penn Wharton Budget Model, who has a new report out on the legislation. We started by asking John about the long-term impact on the all-important deficit. Um, well, the latest bill, as compared to the compromise that they were discussing in June, definitely uh, increases deficits and debts a little bit. Um, you know, they're they're depending a lot on money that's being returned from um, you know COVID and a number of other uh, programs that would have been returned to the U.S. Treasury, but that money is now going to be used to spend spend uh, uh, to be spent on infrastructure. Uh, and so that will raise the debt and deficit in both the short and long run. When we talk about some of the provisions that we were put in here, John, specifically to try to sort of pay for this, some would ask, A, why is that even needed? If you have a bill and you have proposals here that uh, some would argue are actually going to contribute to GDP growth, do you know, sort of need sort of a pay-in uh, in order to justify that? Doesn't the GDP growth or the potential for that, isn't that justification enough? Does that exist for this bill? Um, well, certainly for the, uh, you know, the infrastructure is going to be productive and it will help uh, increase GDP, uh, particularly over the long run. Uh, it takes a long time for infrastructure to become productive and generate additional GDP. Um, but it does matter how we pay for it. So deficit spending has a habit of crowding out uh, private, uh, private capital investments. So the factories, the, the uh, computers, the equipment that generate goods and services. And so um, deficit spending has a habit of offsetting some of the benefits from the public capital investment. And different types of taxes and different types of revenue sources have different effects, and they may be able to find uh, some that have um, less of an offset against the productivity uh, benefits from, from the public, uh, public infrastructure investment. John, I've spent some time chatting with people on the municipal side of this. When they think about, as Scott Minard, the CIO of Guggenheim, has come out and saying that issuing and paying for this via municipal bonds or Build America bonds is it makes cities and states partners in infrastructure investments instead of just passive bystanders to the Fed. Why aren't we talking more about that? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think people have been looking to the federal government for a long time to sort of take an, an, uh, an active role in promoting infrastructure and particularly projects that span over multiple jurisdictions. Uh, where it may be more difficult to get municipalities to agree um, on the terms and, and the types of projects that be built. And so I think that, that why they're, they're emphasizing sort of a federal involvement, because it's, it's in some ways easier for the federal government to get some of these projects across, because it 
uh, you know, they're lending incentives for these uh, for the municipalities and uh, the state and local governments to work together to build new infrastructure. Um, and it might be more difficult for them to uh, to pursue these projects on their own. John, I want to go back to how your analysis originally, when when in June the original infrastructure bill, you thought mm -hmm. led to higher GDP, whereas now you feel. It, it, the deficits are higher under this proposal versus the earlier version. Can you remind us exactly why? What is it that's going on that makes you feel that GDP just isn't going to be as injected uh, with, with growth as it was in the first version? Absolutely. So in the first version, there were more, uh, there were more sources of revenues. In particular, they had allocated, um, uh, they, they were anticipating about $100 billion from an increase in IRS enforcement so that the IRS would be able to do investigations and more audits, and that would generate some significant amount of money uh, and that that would continue to raise money beyond the 10 year window over which you know the congressional budget office and we look and and so we anticipated that debt would actually go down in the long run and we'd be crowding in a little bit of private capital we'd be encouraging a little bit more investment uh from private households wow. um so that would lead to higher gdp the current bill has um you know spends a lot more of unused funds and things that we think will increase the deficit and debt over the long run I mean, but as you sort of model this over at Penn Wharton, John, I'm wondering how do you sort of factor in, I guess, the intangibles or sort of maybe the second order benefits of these types of bills? You talk about 100 and plus billion dollars for roads, bridges and other types of infrastructure projects. You talk about public transit. You talk about airport facilities. These are all things that, at least in the past, we've pointed to and said this encourages private business development. It encourages a lot of other things that could generate revenue. And I'm saying, how do you actually factor that into a model when it's not necessarily a one-for-one -one equation? No, that's a great question. Um, that's really the core of what we're doing here is that we're, when we build public infrastructure, we're raising the productivity in our model and theoretically in real life um, of people, of workers, of capital. You know, you're making people's trucks more effective. You know, they can get goods to where they're going faster. You know, if you have better airports, they're spending less time on the ground waiting their landing slot times. Um, these sorts of things are directly reflected in GDP and they're reflected in our model as well. Um, some of the infrastructure projects, particularly water infrastructure, may not be as well measured by GDP. Uh, in those cases, they have uh, some significant, you know, health benefits uh, for the communities in which these investments are made that may not actually be captured by our analysis. Now, we had to invite back a guest who got cut off last week. Rune Christensen is the co-founder of MakerDAO. And he was set to join us last week, but due to some technical difficulties, it cut that conversation short. Now, it prompted some pretty wild conspiracy theories across social media. I think at one point I even became a crypto meme. But we had to get back to that conversation, that interview, to talk about the future of crypto, of stable coins, of indeed the ecosystem. As remember, the infrastructure bill was in some way almost hijacked because of a cryptocurrency focus. We started by asking Rune about the different mechanics of decentralized stablecoins, which is what MakerDAO is building. Yeah, the, I mean, really the basic idea underpinning DeFi is that, you know, the financial infrastructure of the future should not be controlled by a single person or a single group making decisions behind closed doors, right? We think that creating financial infrastructure that is controlled openly with decision-making processes that involves you know, stakeholders of all kinds um, is just going to be, a, right. you know, a better and more equitable infrastructure for the, the future of finance. So, okay, you're, 
Stablecoin DAI is backed by a range of crypto assets opposed, as opposed to $1 for $1 in a bank somewhere. So it's more decentralized. That being said, one of the biggest assets that people pledge as collateral is the centralized stablecoin USDC. Are you therefore backdoor centralized if a sort of a regulate if a centralized stablecoin is one of the biggest assets backing your coin? I mean, it's definitely not ideal that right now most of the collateral is in a single asset because basically the idea behind a decentralized stablecoin like DAI is that you want to really diversify the collateral that you use. But I mean, the great thing about having uh, USDC, basically having dollars backing DAI, is that yeah. it's quite easy to to sort of um, use it, right? And and so what what Maker is now focused on is deploying its collateral and 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 really uh, deploying capital to real world assets. And I think one of my favorite examples is actually you know a, a small business called New Silver, which is an American yeah. um, re real estate um, short term mortgage lender that uh, has set up the world's first decentralized line of credit. So basically it's established a relationship where you have a decentralized protocol, MakerDAO, providing cheap and affordable credit to uh, right. a small business in the US that then turns around and lends that out to entrepreneurs and, and businesses in America. And I think that's an example of like how DeFi can you know, cut through financial barriers and establish these direct relationships that just give better terms to regular people. And Rune, add to growth in the US to a large extent. That's the argument. That's the argument that's being put in particular on Capitol Hill right now. The, the force with which cryptocurrency came to bear, you know, some of the technology that was deployed to be able to call your senator with ease when suddenly it was realized that the language it was like to, about to get into the infrastructure bill and is still in the infrastructure bill that's going to the house would remain as someone who's of course got a stable coin but also got the maker coin as well, which is, you know, Ethereum-based, the whole premise is upon decentralization. How, how much of a worry is what's in the infrastructure bill right now for your own ecosystem? I mean, so I actually think that the whole, um, I mean, everything that happened with the infrastructure bill, I mean, I really like to focus on the positives because I think it is amazing to see the level of political momentum and the understanding on the, on the Senate floor of, of the advantages that you know, DeFi is already creating today. I mean, because here's the thing, when it comes to the benefits to the US economy of DeFi, I mean, the most important thing to understand is that it's disproportionately benefiting the United States, right? Stable coins, they're basically the lifeblood of DeFi. And, right. you know, they, all of them are US dollar based, right? Nobody else is, is getting this, this uh, advantage. And this is resulting in, actually, I just calculated this morning, right? It, it, today already, it's more than $100 billion of capital that's been deployed into the US economy in the form of you know, corporate bonds and, and yeah. treasure bills, you know, providing investment, creating jobs, right? And um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's establishing the United States dollar as the internet reserve currency. Hmm. Right. Um, well, and, well, okay, Rune, but I mean, some of the criticism, the pushback to that would be, well, the U.S. government wants to establish the dollar as the internet reserve currency. Are you worried at all uh, that the Fed, the Treasury might actually come in and usurp some of the gains that you've made? So in the end, I believe that given the, um, I mean, given the conversation that's already happening and given sort of the, the facts on the ground in terms of just like the incredible momentum and this disproportionate advantage that, that DeFi is, is creating for the U.S. economy, I really believe that um, we'll see uh, you know, a positive outcome that's going to regulate the space sensibly and promote innovation. But, you know, because the reality is that while 
America is right now benefiting far more than basically any other country in the world. This is global technology, right? I mean, this is technology right. that's completely borderless. And if the, the politicians and the regulators were to create a hostile environment for crypto in the US, you'd simply see all of this, all of these benefits just slip away, right, to another country. Um, and I really think that would be a historical mistake. So your system has actually two coins or two tokens. There is the stable coin die that uh, basically maintains its peg to the dollar. And then there is the maker token. And uh, holders of the maker token have done extremely well. There is a stability fee that actually burns uh, tokens. So the supply drops. It sounds very much like a buyback. And we know that Gary Gensler, for example, has been talking about you know, some of these tokens in DeFi, maybe they're equity and should be treated as such. Will this be an, does this concern you that, or is there, uh, do you believe that the maker token is a de facto form of equity? I think the, the, the thing that really sets DeFi apart is the, you know, the fact that there's really no single person, there's no company in charge, right? So what the maker token allows people to do is to directly participate in governance of the system um, so, so holders of this token, they actually directly vote with the token on, you know, questions like what collateral should we include? What kind of, of uh, parameters and, and terms should we give it, right? And so they're, they're, they're actually, you know, they're looking at projects like Neil Silver, which I described earlier, right? Which is talk, right. we're talking about lending money into to real estate in the U.S. There's also other projects like SolarX, uh, you know, a solar farm in, New, in, um, in Long Island, and it's, it's this transparency and this community governance that allows people from all over the world to actually sit and directly make these decisions, right? There's not some sort of CEO or boss or middleman that, that makes the decisions for them, right? They actually have to do it themselves. But are you worried about a boss being formed as regular? You speak so optimistically about what has been created in the United States already and how indeed it could be driven offshore if regulation isn't done well and right you want to focus on the positives that's been taken from the senate floor you want to talk about the positives that have already been injected by DeFi into the united states is there a risk that the u.s loses that well i mean like i said i still i really i'm very optimistic in uh, the political momentum um and i think that it it's just a simple fact that yeah there i mean there is theoretically risk that this gets driven offshore in the U.S. and it would probably be irreversible, right? You would, the U.S. would, would kind of um, just lose this, this uh, massive amount of capital and innovation that sort of dropped into its lap for free, essentially, and would go somewhere else. You know, I have, I'm not even aware, right? The United Kingdom, Switzerland, Singapore, European Union. Surely there's going to be some place where there are, are you know, politicians and lawmakers that want to create a an environment that welcomes crypto innovation. But the reality is, yeah. I, I mean, based on what I heard uh, in the Senate, right, yeah. I think that probably the, it is the US that really um, mm. is gonna make the decision. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. We also caught up with a repeat What You Missed guest. That's Svi Schreiber. He's the CEO and founder of Freitos, the internet marketplace for the trillion-dollar international freight market. Now, Svi is also the author of a new book, Money Going Out of Style, the story of money and the mystery of its decline. Now, Svi told us why he thinks fiat currency is in the midst of a bit of a midlife crisis. We started by talking about the important anniversary that falls on his book launch, August the 15th. That's the date that the U.S. broke away from the gold standard back in 1971. And if this 50-year experiment has run its course. Absolutely, it was time to coincide with the anniversary. As you said, this weekend is exactly 50 years from when Nixon unlinked the dollar and then afterwards the other currencies unlinked from gold. So for thousands of years, you know, money was a commodity or linked to a commodity. And suddenly, exactly half a century ago, it became a, an intriguing, intangible thing. And uh, yeah, I did time the book to coincide with that, with that anniversary. Fiat currency, of course, is trying to be overtaken by new and more cutting-edge crypto-related currencies. But I'm interested in as to what you think is going on at the moment in terms of fiat currency. When you say it's having a midlife crisis in the book, what exactly is that crisis? What exactly... Printing too much of it, inflationary pressures, erosion of the dollar? What is it that you see? Yeah, I think it's a combination of printing too much of it and then that money not getting spent. So in the 70s, and, you know, Katie referenced deflation. So in the 70s, the central banks printed too much money and that resulted in inflation. But in the last 13 years, the central banks have really printed vast amounts of money and it hasn't caused inflation. I know there's been a little inflation in the last couple of months, but the amount of money printed in the last 13 years is staggering. The US-based money has increased from, from about a trillion dollars uh, in 2008 to six trillion. So it's gone up 500%. And the actual spending on goods and services has gone, only gone up about 50% in the same period. So if you look at the velocity of money, 13 years ago, each dollar was spent about 10 times a year. So it circulated. You know, It was paid as a salary and then pay, uh, spent on goods and services 10 times a year. Now it's only about once a year. So when I call the book Money Going Out of Style, I was referencing the fact that in the last decade plus, money is just not being spent. Well, I want to bring it back to the bond market because in your new book, you seem very concerned about negative real interest rates. But if we look at the bond market, we haven't seen positive real rates, at least on the 10-year, since March 2020. So it almost feels like we're at a new normal. So why are negative real interest rates so worrying? Yeah, thanks, Katie. That's a great question. Uh, I am worried about negative real interest rates. They've been with us for a decade now, almost almost consistently. Uh, today, if you lend money to the U.S. government on a, on a you know inflation protected uh, bond uh, for ten years, you get back you're guaranteed to get back one percent less than what you invest today. So that doesn't sound very attractive, right? And this is really a, a whole reversal of the way the economy works throughout all of history. If you were saving, you were rewarded for saving. And if you were borrowing, you paid for the privilege of borrowing. In the last 10 years, that, believe it or not, has got reversed. And when you save, you get no interest. And in fact, 
after inflation, you're actually paying for the yeah. privilege of, um, of you know, saving. Whereas you can borrow, if you've got good credit, you can borrow for next to nothing. In Europe, you can borrow for less than nothing. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is a scary reversal of the value of time where people yeah. are actually you know, paying a premium to, to, to have things later. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, in this conversation, V, of course, we're talking about, of course, the idea here, too, that you have a lot of this fiscal stimulus uh, coming down the pipe here. Of course, this, of course, means more debt uh, potentially being issued by the Treasury. A little bit earlier uh, in the day here on Bloomberg Television, we spoke with Chris Brightman. He's a CIO and CEO over at Research Affiliate Partners. And here's what he had to say. I think he put it very succinctly. If you have the Treasury wire transferring trillions of dollars of newly created money into people's bank accounts, it's going to reduce the value of dollars relative to goods, services, and stuff. This seems to be the issue that a lot of people in the market, as we are concerned about here. The Treasury continuing to pump money out there. The idea that over time, this could actually devalue the dollar in some way. That hasn't necessarily happened yet. I mean, with negative real yields, with all the concerns we have, that hasn't materialized. When do you think, if at all, we get to the point where that does become a material factor? Well, Romain, I think it may have materialized in a non-obvious way. So... Like you said, and like your guest earlier said, for the last decade plus, um, the Fed and other central banks have been printing money at, a, at an incredible rate. And the textbooks say that that should cause uh, inflation, goods and services should, should have their price increase. And that has not occurred, or, or only you know, relatively slightly. Uh, but instead, a lot of that money has increased the prices of stocks and properties and cryptocurrencies. So I think you get this sort of ironic situation where a lot of money is being printed, and instead of driving up the prices of goods and services, it's driving up the price mm -hmm. of stocks and other investments. And in the book, I do explore whether this is perhaps related to increasingly extreme inequality. Yeah. So if you give money to somebody mm -hmm. who needs more goods and services, they'll buy more goods and services. You give the money to someone who's already got all the goods and services they want, they spend that money um, you know, on, on speculative investments, perhaps. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This week, we also got some blockbuster earnings from none other than Disney. It's been such an attractive stock over the years because, well, the ecosystem it's built. Just think, movies, products you can buy from those movies, hotels based on those movies, even theme parks inspired by those movies. And now before the pandemic, the parks business was actually the biggest source of revenue on a percentage basis. The numbers, of course, dropped off with COVID, but now seem to be coming back with especially strong booking numbers for cruises. 
We got some perspective from a man with decades of experience in the hospitality business. It's John Gurner, who is managing director of the consulting group Leisure Business Advisors. We started by asking John if he was impressed by Disney's earnings numbers and if this looks like the road to recovery. I am impressed. Uh, I think there was some concern uh, based off of the the latest Delta variant situation, but we'd already within the industry received some encouraging signs from competitors such as Universal theme parks and the SeaWorld parks that they were still performing better than expected. So in many ways, we would expect uh, Disney, the leader of the theme park group, to perform better than expected as well. It seems to be performing better than expected. I mean, we're showing uh, images on the screen now of people cleaning and people in face masks here. With regards to the steps that Disney has taken uh, to make sure that not only things are clean, but that people can feel safe here, uh, has there been any sort of additional costs that, that are, I guess, material enough for investors to be concerned about? Well, I think the key thing to keep in mind here is how critically important it is for Disney to maintain its trust with visitors. Yes. Disney has a great brand in our industry. People feel that Disney is a trusting company, that when you go there, they're going to be doing everything that they can reasonably do to keep you safe in this situation. <laughs> and already, they've done some recent steps, such as bringing back the indoor masking requirement. They've put a m many more plexiglass barriers inside of queue lines and other areas. You can, you can see many signs that they're doing everything that they can. And this is so important because right now we're still in a situation where, especially in Florida, there is an increase in cases. Uh, and so there's going to be concern. But a lot of these tourists, and remember, we're only a few weeks from the end of the traditional summer season ending at Labor Day. A lot of those visits have already been locked in. And so these visitors are very likely going to come as long as they are assured that Disney is doing everything that it reasonably can to be a safe place to visit. And a safe place to work as well, John. And what, of course, is affecting so many businesses at the moment is a quote-unquote labor shortage, an ability to get people in and working for you at, at the given wage. And there's been viral videos that purportedly showing Disney World and the like, if you go onto TikTok, sort of perhaps feeling the strain of that, not able to clean up at the pace that they would wish to. How much is that something that really Disney needs to understand and ensure that they're tackling at great haste? Well, Disney is not only a leader in customer service within our industry, the theme park industry, but for businesses in general. And so as a result, people expect Disney to maintain that high level of customer service, including cleanliness and all and all that customer service entails. Uh, of course, you know we all understand that there are labor shortages and that's going to have some impact. But as long as Disney is doing everything that it can to maintain its expected uh, service levels, then they should be able to work through this current labor shortage situation. John, what we love about getting you on is you also speak to some of the intangibles, some of the properties and the values that maybe don't necessarily show up on a quarterly cash flow basis, but you talk about the real estate portfolio with rising real estate prices across the country. How could they also benefit from the brand, but also, of course, owning some of these properties? Yes, I think it's just so important when you're looking at the different divisions of Disney to keep in mind that they have fundamentally different business models. The, the movies and the TV shows, the whole entertainment side, much more
short-term results, much more quarterly focused type of businesses. The theme parks, the resorts, the real estate operations, the cruise lines, those are all long-term operations. And so, although, of course, revenues, profits are important as far as how they can provide value to the, to the company, they can also help the company financially by increasing its asset value. And if we're seeing real estate values overall increasing, we have to remember Disney owns tens of thousands of prime real estate acres, uh, much of which has already been developed well, much of it has not. And that in the long term uh, is an important aspect of its operation. You know, as, as exciting as the movie and the TV side of the business uh, are, the, the theme park and resort side and real estate development side of the business yeah. traditionally over the decades has provided that long-term stability and financial support and foundation that has really helped the company in the long-term and has made it a really good long-term investment. And that's it for this week. And in fact, that's it for now. What you missed this week while well, we're signing off. This will be our last episode. Joe is taking a step back from What You Miss. But of course, you can still find him on Odd Lots with Tracy Alloway, wherever you listen to your podcasts and, of course, that newsletter he puts out. You can still catch me and remain alongside Taylor Riggs every weekday, 4.30 till 5pm Eastern on Bloomberg TV. Thanks to everyone who's listened over the years. Have a really great weekend. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.